Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of progress. As we've talked about in many previous podcasts, human nutrition is a fiendishly complicated subject. The food we eat fuels and influences everything that goes on in our bodies, and that's a lot of different things. Just think of how many different medical specialties there are. Neurology, cardiology, gastroenterology, nephrology, and on and on. You can spend your entire professional life studying the workings of any one organ and never achieve a full understanding of it. And our diet interacts with all of them, and also changes all of the interactions between them. It's an overwhelming thing to try to get your head around. And so, traditionally, nutrition scientists have largely used epidemiological research, looking at how different nutritional choices affect health on the broadest scale. This is a useful tool, but an incomplete one. Here's one of the leaders in the field of nutritional epidemiology, Dr. Frank Hu, professor at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. In most epidemiological studies, we typically analyze the relationship between exposures such as diet, smoking, exercise, and disease outcomes like diabetes, cardiovascular or cancer. But in most situations, we really don't understand the biological mechanisms underlying those relationships. For example, we know that exercise uh, is good for preventing diabetes, heart disease, uh, certain dietary factors such as higher amount of fruits and vegetables uh, are beneficial for reducing risk of cardiovascular diseases. But uh, we really don't know um, what are the metabolic processes or the metabolic pathways underlying those uh, relationships. On the other hand, the molecular biologists and biochemists who study those metabolic processes are, by necessity, studying them one at a time, and aren't often looking beyond a discrete set of interactions to the larger stories about whole organisms that are told by epidemiology. So recently, there's a trend, and not just in nutrition, but in many sciences, towards what's called a systems science approach. This means attempting to bridge that gap and look at phenomena from several of these different viewpoints at once. A good example of this might be what's happening in genetics, where classical genetics, which looks at individual genes and what they do to affect an organism's heredity, is being supplemented and complemented by genomics, which looks at the genome as a whole and how individual genes interact with the genes and groups of genes around them, and also by epigenetics, which looks at how the expression of these genes is affected by the other things that surround the DNA, the other chemicals found in the nucleus and beyond. Here's Dr. Julie Schliske, program manager at the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science here at the Academy. It would be an approach to examining a system within an organism using various disciplines at various levels um, to get a more holistic look at an organism or a physiology. So the farther and farther we step back and the more and more involved we get in the measurement of that physiology, the better our understanding of it will be, but also the more complex the science will have to get. Here's Dr. Hu again. Now we are in the paradigm shift from uh, this so-called black box epidemiology to systems epidemiology. And this approach also allows us to examine the potential interactions between um, um, the exposome, uh, which uh, 
uh, includes all non-genetic elements uh, to which we are exposed and the quantifiable uh, elements of the human physiology. So it's really exciting um, uh, approach. This approach of looking at a problem from two or more different vantage points of scale is especially useful for observing how a situation changes over time, and also how two different parts of a system can interact with each other in what might be called a feedback loop. Here's Dr. Patricia Mabry, Senior Advisor on Disease Prevention at the National Institutes of Health. There where A um, causes something to change in B, but B turns around and causes something to change in A, and then all of a sudden you have uh, what, we, what we might think of as these um, uh, virtual um, cycles where things get better and better um, quickly. Think about um, compounding interest on your money or get worse very quickly if they are um, vicious cycles that we often refer to them. The system science uh, methods can help us detect also unintended consequences. We may be looking for one outcome and turn out that we find something else. And then there's emergent properties, and these are um, properties of the system that you can't necessarily track down to one individual component of the system. Um, the easiest way to think of this would be, for example, a rainstorm. And if you studied a raindrop, um, you could certainly understand all the properties of a raindrop, but you would not be any closer to understanding a, um, a rainstorm unless you uh, looked at all of the raindrops together collectively. One of the problems the nutrition world is particularly excited to apply this new thinking to is one many would call an out-and-out crisis in this country and many others. And that's the increasing number of people who have problems processing sugar due to a malfunctioning in their hormonal systems. This is a condition called type 2 diabetes. And the most recent estimate is that it affects 28 million people in the United States, nearly 9% of the total population. And the current dominant thinking about type 2 diabetes is that it's not a discrete condition, but rather a common manifestation of a larger suite of conditions, including high blood pressure, that are together known as metabolic disease or metabolic syndrome. And this syndrome, for all its ubiquity, is as poorly understood as any aspect of nutrition, because like all the rest, it's fiendishly complex. Perhaps the only thing that everyone in the nutrition and medical communities agree on when it comes to metabolic syndrome is that it goes hand in hand with an even more prevalent condition, and that's obesity. And therefore, the best way from a public health standpoint to prevent metabolic syndrome would be for a significant percentage of the population of the developed world to lose weight. Here's Dr. Hu. As everyone knows, uh, obesity is the single most important risk factor for type 2 diabetes. So there is no question that weight control is the single most important way to reduce the risk of diabetes. That makes it sound simple. But large-scale public obesity in the U.S. and elsewhere has proven to be a very difficult problem to solve. For one thing, it's astoundingly prevalent. By some counts, two-thirds of the American population is overweight. Two-thirds! For another, like all problems in public health and nutrition, something that might sound simple, a question perhaps of just encouraging people to eat less and exercise more, is actually quite complicated. Here's Dr. Mabry. 
the problem um, of obesity and other uh, related problems in nutrition research are complex. They occur at many levels of analysis, all the way from the atomic level, all the way up through molecular, cellular, organ, tissue, um, whole body. And then we go to the more outside the skin levels of individuals, families, social group levels, communities, national and state and global levels. Um, and then the complexity goes further because not only are these different levels interacting, but they're interacting over time and, and can even go uh, between generations. And this complexity has been reflected in decades of public health work on obesity that has proved to be frustratingly ineffective. All of this makes obesity a prime candidate for the application of these new systems science approaches, which are designed to tackle these very kinds of complexities. This past April, the Sackler Institute held a meeting at the Academy to explore using system science as a tool for tackling widespread obesity. In this podcast, we'll look at many different approaches that were suggested at that meeting. And we're going to start with some serious scientists asking a question that, at first blush, might seem more suited to a daytime talk show or supermarket tabloid. Why is it so hard to lose weight and keep it off? Here's Dr. Rudolf Leibel, co-director of the Naomi Berry Diabetes Center at Columbia University. Despite various sorts of strategies, including diets and behavioral modification, what happens over a number of years is that people return to their starting weight. They generally don't go higher. They don't generally go lower. They go right back to where they started. There is likely, and certainly I'll show you some data to support this, a physiologic system that is causing body weight to be maintained around a threshold. This threshold effect is a good example of the kind of change-over-time phenomenon that a system science approach is particularly good at examining. Here's Dr. Mabry again. As an easy example, uh, mentally, is your um, thermostat. When it hits a certain temperature of uh, 69 degrees, but you want it to be 70, your thermostat kicks in to make it go to 70. But um, if the temperature... Um, uh, you know, doesn't go to that that specific number, it might um, fall from 75 to 74 to 73 and no change until it hits that magic number of 69 where it kicks it back up to 70. In this case, the mechanism of your internal body weight thermostat, if you will, is a hormone called leptin, which tells the subconscious part of your brain when your weight is changing. Here's Dr. Leibel. Fundamentally, one of the major players in this system is this hormone leptin that we identified a number of years ago, and it's produced in proportion to the size and the number of your fat cells. So an obese person who generally has larger fat cells and more of them will produce more of this hormone than an individual who's at lower body weight. And this hormone circulates in the blood and gets into the brain and basically is the means by which the brain determines what your body uh, fat is, because the concentration of the hormone is proportional to the um, amount of fat that you have. What this means is that when you lose weight, the level of leptin in your system drops. And when that level drops below a certain threshold, which is different for different people, your brain notices and reacts in an attempt to maintain your body mass at the level it's used to. 
This threshold is determined by genetics, development, that is pre- and postnatal effects on brain development, imprinting, which occurs developmentally and postnatally, and obviously the environment plays a role interacting with uh, uh, these other factors. So an obese individual has a higher threshold. They have a more body fat when they're at their usual body weight. And the signal for an obese person is louder and higher. And a lean individual has smaller fat mass, needs a smaller signal to get over the threshold. This is the sort of homeostatic circumstance of lean and obese individuals. They're, in a sense, trying to keep their signal over that threshold. Now, where that threshold is, is determined, as he said, in part by genetics, and in part by the kind of environmental factors that we can't control, things that happen to us in utero, for instance. But we can also move it during our lives, change what our body considers to be its normal weight. And it's much, much easier to move it up than move it down. In other words, if you're at a healthy weight, your brain is kind of okay with the idea of you becoming overweight. But once you become overweight, it's very uncomfortable with the idea of you becoming lean again. Weight reduction doesn't alter the threshold, or at least it doesn't alter it in a downward direction. So now what you've got is an ex-obese person with the same threshold sending a signal which is inadequate for that threshold. And what that means is that this individual will sense deficiency of body fat. And the sensation of deficiency of body fat is conveyed physiologically in two ways. It makes you hungry and it makes you spend less energy. Teleologically, it's trying to get your body fat back to where you decided to, to uh, from which you decided to lower it. It doesn't like that. This might sound like your subconscious brain is working against your good health in a way that's downright unfair. But you have to keep in mind that widespread obesity, what's sometimes called overnutrition, has only been a problem for the past 40 years or so. For that many daily calories to become available to all but the very wealthy, a couple of huge technological developments had to happen. The green revolution that all but wiped out famine in the developed world, and the development and marketing of cheap, high-calorie processed convenience foods, both of which really took hold sometime between 1950 and 1970. For the previous maybe 160,000 years that Homo sapiens have been around, there was a looming threat of undernutrition, wasting, and starvation. This has evolutionarily programmed our bodies to be very wary of weight loss. This makes even more sense when you think about what weight loss is. To lose weight, your body has to enter into what's called a catabolic state, meaning that you're not getting enough energy from your diet to fuel the amount of exercise you're asking your body to do. So you begin to actually eat away at yourself to make up the difference. In the case of overweight people, it's probably parts of yourself that you wouldn't mind eating away at. But even so, it's not something your body ever prefers to do. Here's Dr. Schliske. All of the hormones that affect appetite, that affect body weight, all of these things need to be sort of thrown on their heads to cause your body to now go into your reserves and draw from those. So that's not going to be your body's first line of defense, right? If you decide all of a sudden to reduce your energy intake by a thousand calories, 
your body's not going to say, okay, well, that's fine. I've got lots of excess adipose tissue. I'll just go ahead and start using that. Um, there's going to be other things that start happening to affect your appetite, to affect your energy expenditure that are going to first come into place because um, in, an, in an evolutionary perspective, we don't know when you may see food again. What Dr. Leibel and his team have been working on is a way of tricking that system by giving people who have recently lost weight extra leptin so that the body doesn't panic and try to get them to gain it back. If you can trick the brain into thinking the fat hasn't been lost, you're not going to see that physiologic compensation that I described before of lower energy expenditure and greater drive to eat. So you can actually restore a person's brain activity, if you will, to pre-weight loss status by tricking it by replacing the hormone. And they've had some promising results. It's going to need a lot more testing and development before it could become a widely available treatment to help people who are trying to lose weight. But it's a really interesting and exciting area of inquiry. And getting back to the point of this episode, it's a development that could not have been made without a systems biology approach to looking at the problem of weight loss. It required zooming out from the biochemistry of leptin and including a study of the larger signaling systems between the body and the brain, as well as epidemiological work about dieting and exercise. And this was just one of several interesting applications of applying a system science approach to nutrition science that was presented at this meeting. Another looked at a field that might seem about as far from nutrition as you could get, mathematics. Here's Dr. Kevin Hall, a tenured senior investigator at the National Institutes of Health, talking about how, to his way of thinking, a math error has been fouling projections for the effectiveness of nutritional interventions for years, if not decades. There's some very old and yet some very recent advice that was given in, uh, in JAMA just uh, uh, relatively recently, a few months ago, about what you need to know about um, weight loss. And the statement was that there's a total of 3,500 calories uh, per pound of body weight. And to translate that, that means that if you decrease or increase your intake by 500 calories a day, you will lose or gain one pound per week. And that's just because uh, simple arithmetic, 500 calories per day times seven days equals 3,500 calories. Um, and I'm, I'm here to tell you that's absolutely wrong. Um, despite the fact that dietitians, I believe, are still tested on this as part of their accreditation, it's in practically every nutrition textbook that you'll read about when you get to the section on obesity, um, and, it, and it turns out to be wrong. And you can kind of understand very readily why this is wrong, because if I was to take a 100 kilo man and cut their calories by 500 calories per day, well, after two years, they'd vanish. When you really cut 500 calories a day out of a 100 kilo man's diet, um, they get some weight loss, but they eventually stabilize. Um, so this is for a step change in calories. You cut 500 and keep them down at that lower value. And what happens, you'll notice, is that they don't lose anywhere near as much as the 3,500 calorie per pound rule. After one year, you know, you're an order of magnitude or more off your predicted weight loss. And uh, it takes a really long time to stabilize, right? So after three years, you're only starting to see the stabilization. There's this uh, delay in how long it takes to re-equilibrate at, at a new body weight. Some of that has to do with the hormonal effects we heard about from Dr. Leibel. 
But there's even more to it. Losing weight seems to cause changes in your metabolism, so that even if you eat less, you're making more efficient use of the food you do eat. As a metaphor for this, imagine you were dealing with someone who had a shopping problem. They're constantly bringing home too many things, to the point that their house is crammed full of stuff they don't need, and every day they're bringing home more and more. As a solution, you take away their credit cards and put them on a strict allowance, thinking that they can't spend what they don't have. Then, though, they start clipping coupons and going to garage sales, so their limited money goes farther and farther. Pretty soon they're spending less money, but bringing home just as much stuff. Of course, this is all part of your body's fail-safes to avoid that catabolic state we spoke about earlier. And it points strongly to the limitations of trying to apply simple arithmetic to complex biological systems. And math errors like that mean business in science, particularly in a science like nutrition. If an astrophysicist makes a mathematical error, it might mean that a particular exoplanet is a thousand light years further away than we thought. Interesting and important, but not really relevant to anyone's day-to-day -day life on Earth. When a nutritionist makes an error like this, though, it can have serious effects on public health policies. Um, so this isn't just an issue about giving advice to individual patients, as that patient page from the JAMA uh, article I mentioned. This is also um, some mistakes that have been made in the policy area. So for example, in 2010, folks from the USDA Economic Research Service um, made some uh, very you know, sophisticated models about uh, what would happen if you were to tax calorically sweetened beverages, to primarily sugar-sweetened beverages, what sorts of substitutions would happen um, at a population-wide level, and they came up with an idea that about 20% tax would uh, population-wide decrease energy intake by about 40 calories per day per person. Okay, so it's, you know, not nothing. It's a, it's a value. But they went further and used the 3,500 calorie per pound rule to basically suggest that over the course of five years, we could return the mean adult body weight back to the levels of the 1970s. So essentially reverse the obesity epidemic. Well, they don't quite say that. They reported as per year, how much weight loss would you expect? But this is an extrapolation over that time period. Unfortunately, um, these folks were just down the road in, in DC, and so I went and met with them and showed them what our model would predict. And we ended up publishing a paper together, revising their predictions and showing basically the dangers of using this very simplistic notion of 3,500 calories per pound and what would actually happen to, um, uh, to uh, we believe, might happen to the prevalence of overweight and obesity in the nation. So not nothing, but nowhere near as dramatic a decline in the prevalence that would be, uh, that would be uh, predicted based on the 3,500 calorie per pound rule. And this is a big issue in nutrition science and many other sciences at the moment. The need to replace mathematical formulas that try to explain one element of a system at a time with large, complex mathematical models that attempt to explain entire systems. This kind of modeling also has the potential to help us around another crucial problem in nutrition science. The fact that seeing results from a particular intervention often takes longer than most studies are able to continue watching. Here's Dr. Mabry again. Modeling and simulation are particularly valuable for doing virtual experimentation. And when we talk about the real world and in particular uh, policy, you, you can't put it in place a policy 
wait 20 years to see the full effect of that policy, like say it was um, some sort of a school intervention on um, school food uh, menus or something, and then wait 20 years until all those kids grow up and become adults, look at the impact it had on obesity, and then go back in time, uh, back to when the, the, the adults, the people who are now adults were kids again, and do a different policy and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to try something different and then compare them all. And because we don't have a time machine, we really value these in silico laboratories where we can do these types of experiments based on the information we have in somewhat of a simplified form in our, um, uh, with our simulation model. We can try policies of different strengths. We can try them for different periods. We can drive them on, try them on um, populations with different characteristics and so on. So that's mixing biochemistry, epidemiology, and math. But this approach goes even further afield. As the nutrition science community's view of complex problems like obesity continues to broaden, even the social sciences are coming into play. Because a complete understanding of the science of why people become obese has to include the fact that people make choices about what they eat. And these choices have to do with all kinds of things other than the relative nutritional content of one food versus another. People choose based on what tastes good, or what's convenient, or what they grew up eating, or what's packaged attractively, or a thousand other factors that have very little to do with the biochemistry of their metabolism. Here's Dr. Christina Roberto, Assistant Professor of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. So fields like psychology and behavioral economics, what people in those fields are trying to do are understand fundamental ways that people make decisions. And so a lot of this research focuses on different heuristics and biases that we have. And what I mean by that are these mental shortcuts that people use to make decisions quickly. This has been around for a long time. People have been studying heuristics, biases for a while. So what's new here? Well, I think what's new is some more enthusiasm and interest in taking those insights and actually applying them to health problems, to understand barriers to change, and to actually think about ways to, to solve this, the obesity problem. Dr. Roberto has been attempting in her own work to create a kind of feedback loop between research and policy so that scientists are looking specifically and directly for answers to questions that people who write public health policy most want and need. It's an approach she calls strategic science. So traditional science programs, you know, you're, you're a curious scientist, you're kind of working in your own silo, you're talking to other scientists, but you're often not talking to change agents or people who are in positions to actually influence change. So the goal of strategic science, and, and what I've been trying to do, is at the point at which I'm developing a research question, uh, I'm actually trying to connect with someone who's in a position to enact change. So I'm talking to, maybe it's an attorney general, maybe it's another kind of legal official, a regulator, a policymaker, an advocacy group, to really understand what data, what questions are most useful to you? What do you need to know? So it's my curiosity plus the most relevant information they would need. The idea is you co-create these questions together if you can, and then certainly, as any scientist would, you conduct good, rigorous scholarship. And then there's a heavy emphasis on communicating those answers back to the change agents. And because you've got that relationship at the start, it's usually much easier to do that. So you know, the goal is do the science and make sure it's actually getting back to the people who could use it so we have more evidence-based policy. And so, in a way, this idea expands the biological system being studied 
all the way out to the whole world, all the way out to politics and marketing, and also allows the research to be targeted. How can I help solve this problem in a real, practical way? Dr. Roberto and her team have begun applying this kind of thinking to studying the effectiveness of several current legislative efforts to combat obesity by influencing the way food is marketed and consumed. Things like putting calorie counts on menus and warning labels on sugary drinks. And maybe this is a way to overcome some of those physiological challenges we looked at earlier, such as the leptin system, that make it so hard for overweight people to lose weight and maintain that weight loss. Maybe by influencing the decisions people make about what they buy and eat, we can counteract some of the underlying biology of their own metabolism. All in all, system science is an exciting and tremendously promising approach, which has all kinds of potential for finding new solutions to old problems in nutrition. But it's early days yet, and it's a concept that continues to develop as it's adopted by more and more researchers in the field. Here's Dr. Schliske again. I think, I think the confusion about what systems biology, what system science is, especially in regards to nutrition and problems that um, involve nutrition science, um, it, it threw a lot of people off. We weren't sure how well received this conference would be because we didn't necessarily know who our audience would be. Um, but I think getting everybody, get, getting people who have a stake in system science or an interest in using system science in the approaches that they're taking in their labs and bringing them together at the Sackler Institute, bringing them together at a conference where they can network, where they can interact, where we can have an open dialogue of how these different tools can be used, what tools people perhaps aren't using that may want to use or might want to maybe share samples with another collaborator that is going to use the data that they're providing in a totally different context to ask questions from another angle to the problem that, that one researcher might be addressing. The moral of this story is this. When we're at an impasse in solving a scientific problem, the best solution is often to step back and expand our focus, because the answer might lie in the larger system that surrounds the problem we are examining. And often, a new point of view is what a scientist needs to make the kind of big breakthrough that makes us all healthier and happier in the long run. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was presented by the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman. Administrative oversight by Murray McLean, Associate Director of the Sackler Institute. This episode drew on material recorded at the event, Nutrition and the Science of Disease Prevention, a Systems Approach to Support Metabolic Health, held at the Academy on April 16, 2015. Both that event and this podcast were presented with the generous support of Metagenics. Special thanks to everyone who appeared in this episode. Drs. Frank Hu and Christina Roberto of Harvard University, Drs. Patricia Mabry and Kevin Hall of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Rudolf Leibel of Columbia University, and Dr. Julie Schliske of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. For more information about the programs of the Sackler Institute, visit www.nyas.org slash nutrition.